Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 7, as we read verses 1 through 24. Hear now the word of God. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Thus ends the reading of God's holy inspired and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths in our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are your children, and we need your help today. Give us food. Give us what we need. Give us Christ. Send your spirit to open our eyes and behold wondrous things from your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's passage uh, takes place during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was after the grape harvest, and it took place during what we would think of in the Western, Western society as October on our calendar. Uh, when we talk about the Feast of Tabernacles, we're talking about a celebration of God's provision during Israel's wilderness wanderings. It was a festival that lasted seven days, and the reason it was called the Feast of Tabernacles or, or booths you could even say tents, probably, um, 
It was because what happened was participants would gather together branches from trees and they would live in sort of these hastily constructed booths or tents. And many Israelites lived in these structures when God delivered them from Egypt. So this is sort of a way of remembering that time, remembering the way that they lived. And, and it was a celebration that was meant to teach children. It was an opportunity for you to, to say to your children, you know, the reason why we're staying in these booths, the reason we're staying in these tabernacles is because this is where our fathers lived when God was rescuing us out of Egypt. And so it's sort of Israel's way of remembering when God provided structure and shelter and protected them during a time when they were trying to live in their own man-made shelter and structures. And so instead, where did Israel end up living? They lived and they sheltered under the wings of Yahweh instead. And as a parent, this is an opportunity for you to explain to your children exactly what it is that God did for your people. Now, your, your equivalent today might be if you enjoy tailgating or if you enjoy camping, you would probably really enjoy this. Um, it would sort of be that kind of fun activity that you do outdoors. You live and the elements and, and you're together with your friends and your family. You would typically do this with, with people that you knew. And this festival is one of the favorites of the Israelites. Josephus, writing around the first century, called Tabernacles the greatest and holiest feast of the Jews. Which doesn't really tell you whether it's the greatest or whether it's the holiest, but it does tell you that at least Josephus, speaking for the Jewish people that he knew at that time, certainly believed that it was so. Um, Leon Morris explains part of the reason why Tabernacles was so popular. He said, Tabernacles marked the successful completion of of their labors. The harvest was in the barns. The people could relax. The people could rejoice. It was a feast for an agricultural people. And so this is a time to celebrate this harvest that's just taken place. And so that's what's going on in Israel when today's actual events take place. Uh, Jesus has these, his half-brothers, and they see that the most popular festival going on in Israel is, is taking place, and they see this as a golden opportunity that it shouldn't be missed, right? And what happens is they, they make a suggestion to Jesus that initiates today's passage, and we'll look at what, what happens there. But I want you to remember, <clears throat> even though Jerusalem is in this festive and joyful place at this time, Jesus is in the last six months of his ministry tops. At this point and so as these events happen he is getting closer to the cross and what that means is that his enemies are even now plotting they are planning they are considering how is it that we can kill Jesus and we see that right in the very first verse of our passage this is what sets the stage tabernacles and the plans by the Jews to kill Jesus and so today's passage leads us through three significant issues that dominate the narrative. Um, and really, they sort of typify all of the ministry of Jesus as a whole. And those three issues are the issues of ambition, the issue of academics, and the issue of authority. Ambition, academics, and authority. And so first this morning, we see this issue of ambition rise to the surface. Um, you will notice this right away. Jesus has... Uh, half-brothers come to him. He had four half-brothers. He had James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. All four of them were his brothers. So there were five boys in the house. 
And then there are a number of girls. We don't know how many sisters he had, but we know that he had more than one sister. So he's at least from a family of, of seven kids, maybe more. Um, <clears throat> but his half-brothers show this kind of ugly side in this moment. See, see what they do. Uh, here they are. Jesus is, is on the path to the cross. He is going to die in six months or so. And according to verse 5, his brothers still don't believe in him. So his, his brothers are unbelievers. And by the way, just think about this. This is just profound, especially if you come from a difficult family. Close proximity to the things of God will not change the heart. Think about this. Christianity doesn't work by osmosis. Um, just because you are, are close to other Christians, just because you're surrounded by believers, even if your whole family trusts in Christ, that doesn't mean that you're saved. That doesn't mean that you've experienced the heart change that Jesus calls us to have. And, and Jesus' brothers could tell you that, couldn't they? As they get older, as they eventually come to faith in Christ for themselves, they could certainly tell you, being close to Jesus for the first 30 years of his life did not convert us. Now, there's a second encouragement as well, and the encouragement is this. You may come from a family where you're the only believer. You may come from a family where you're in the minority. One of the things Rick Phillips points out is that during the most challenging time, Jesus could not enjoy the spiritual fellowship of close family members. Instead, he had to endure their unspiritual advice, which is exactly what comes to him in this moment. And so his brothers don't believe, but in their unbelief, they offer him unspiritual career advice. It sounds like they're offering him career advice here. It's really hard to know what their motivation is. Are they taunting Jesus? Uh, are, are they challenging him? Are they trying to give him worldly encouragement here? It's hard to say, but, but listen to the words that his brothers say. They say, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. They say, if you do these things. If you do these things. They don't say, since you do these things. They say, if you do these things. They, say, they don't believe it. They want this for Jesus, but they seem to want it for themselves, right? They don't believe. It sounds like they believe they could be persuaded. And so like so many of these other people who come to Jesus, they make this demand of him. They say, give us a sign. First, it's like they're saying, give them a sign. But really, they're also saying, give us a sign. We would love to see whatever it is that you can do. And so the brothers are tempting Jesus, and they're, they're throwing the same temptation at Jesus that Satan did. Because if you remember the temptation of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, after he's baptized, he's driven into the wilderness. And one of the things that you will probably remember is that Satan tempted Jesus to take a shortcut to being Israel's savior, right? Satan said, take yourself to the highest point of the temple and throw yourself down. And when you survive in this very public way, you'll have an incredible following. In essence, that's the temptation that Satan presents to Jesus, right? You can have the glory without the cross. And Jesus' brothers seem to want the same for him. They are, they are being tempted by ambition. 
And they are tempting Jesus with ambition as well. And in a worldly sense... Ambition can be a driving factor in our lives, can't it? In some ways, ambition can have its usefulness, right? It can motivate us to work hard. Ambition can motivate us to push ourselves, to, to grow and, and to improve. But ambition can also lead us to a selfish attitude where we think of ourselves as the most important. Ambition is so dangerous. How can we be protected from ambition? One of the protections that Jesus mentions is a change of heart and mind that doesn't come naturally to us. It doesn't come to us apart from the Spirit of God. In verse 7, he says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So what Jesus said, it says, is that ambition can lead to compromise. And Jesus makes this statement. He says, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. What an interesting thing for him to say. My time has not yet come. Your time is always here. Why is it that Jesus' brother's time is always here? Well, the answer is because they're friends with the world. They're no threat to the world. They don't believe in, in Jesus, they, they, they would not tell the world that its works are evil. They would not push back on their culture. Uh, the world's time is now, and his brothers are a part of the world, and the world is on display right now. This is its hour. His brothers are not apart from the world yet. They haven't been separated from the world yet. They're not holy yet. See, Christians, on the other hand, we're different because we need to follow the lead of Jesus here. We live in a difficult time. We live in a difficult time where out of the blue, we will be interrogated by the world about our moral beliefs and our moral systems. And when that happens, we have to be willing to say when something is sin. And, and we testify to the sinfulness of things by the way we live, by the things that we avoid, and also by our words. Oftentimes we are called upon to say that something is a sin. Sometimes we are asked because people care what we believe. And we have to be able to give a clear, winsome answer to the question and not dodge it and not be embarrassed by it. There's nothing embarrassing about the truth of what Christians believe because it's true. Because it's true. We're not delusional. We believe things because they're true. Whether they are popular or not are entirely different reasons and are entirely different questions. But we have to be willing to be disliked by the watching world if necessary. That's why Jesus says his time is not yet, his, not, his time is not now. His brother's time is now because there are no threats to the world. What kind of a Christian are you? Are you the kind of Christian who is a threat to the world? They come to you and they say, what do you believe? Is your answer something that will leave them nodding, happy, satisfied or is it the kind of answer that would leave them deeply displeased this doesn't mean that we're supposed to go around picking fights 
It doesn't mean that Christians are supposed to be known for their cruelty, for their cutting words, for their harsh demeanor. That's not what we're saying. At the same time, though, being timid and pulling punches when the truth is needed will lead to a mentality and an attitude that resembles Jesus' brothers here. Jesus' brothers are no threat to the world. Their time is always here. Their time is always here. But that's an attitude of unbelief. And it's fed by ambition. What does ambition look like? I want the world to love me. What can I say to get you on my side? Even if I compromise my most deeply held beliefs, if you would just praise me and call me brave, oh, it would mean the world to me. That is what ambition looks like. It's not the only way ambition could show its head. That's certainly one way. Second, this morning, comes the issue of academics. That seems kind of weird. It seems kind of random that we would jump from one to the other. Why did we mention academics? Well, I want you to look closely at this. Jesus does go to Jerusalem. He goes later. He goes after his brothers have gone. He's not being dishonest when he says he's not going because he meant, I'm not going with you right now. But he goes in a way that isn't public. And the reason for this is because it wasn't his time. He didn't have the ambition that his brothers had. He wasn't interested in a grand public entrance with crowds trailing behind him. That's not in his favor. That doesn't serve his purpose. It certainly doesn't serve the Father's purpose yet. The Jews don't know if he's there, but they are looking for him, according to verse 11, and it says that the people start muttering about Jesus. What a great word, by the way, muttering. They're muttering about Jesus. They're, they're talking about Jesus in, in hushed tones. They're, they're giving their opinions about him. What they have going on right now, in other words, is a whisper campaign. And in the middle of the feast, this, this may have been around day three or four, Jesus starts teaching in the temple complex area. And there's something that happens when you enter a room, right? You, you know this feeling, perhaps. Sometimes you figure it out later. But you go into a room and you realize, people have been talking about me. You ever, do you ever have that experience? You go into a room, you can tell people have been talking about you. Uh, their people are frosty. Uh, they, they cut off their conversations. They, they watch you closely. They seem to be waiting for you to leave. And, and maybe you know that feeling. But this happens here today. Jesus is being whispered about. Jesus is being spoken about. And he stands to speak in this environment where people have been muttering about him. And then as he teaches, we're not told the content of his speech, but then in verse 14, there seems to be an attempt to discredit Jesus. How do they discredit Jesus? Well, they say, this man has never studied. This man's never studied. What do they mean when they say Jesus has never studied? He's actually one of the most intelligent uh, uh, rabbis that have ever walked the earth. He's well studied. This is a person who knows the Bible and can quote massive uh, portions of scripture to you. What do you mean this man has never studied? Well, what they mean was that Jesus was not a typical rabbi because the typical rabbinic training meant learning about the rulings of other rabbis who've come before. And so in those days, to, to teach with learning and to teach with study, it actually meant that 
you, what, that you knew what other men who had come before you said. It doesn't mean that you have the scripture memorized. It would mean that you have the teachings of the other rabbis memorized. And this is what made Jesus stand out, because think about how Jesus taught. He was different. He, he would begin by saying things like, you have heard it was said, but I tell you. He would contradict the rabbis. Or Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you. He doesn't say, uh, Rabbi Shlemiel uh, said this to you, but he would say, I say to you. He wouldn't say, this rabbi over here said, he would say, I say. And so the, the authority of Jesus comes out in the fact that he doesn't draw his authority from the other rabbis who've come before. The interesting thing is, this is a vastly superior method of arguing the content of Scripture. But to the scholars in the room, he looks like some kind of bumpkin, some kind of, of simpleton. See, what he's really doing is he's claiming direct knowledge from the Father. It is very easy to confuse knowledge of other people's teaching with knowledge of the Bible. It, it is very easy to speak with somebody who understands church history or who has studied systematic theology and yet to think to yourself, wow, that person really knows the Bible. That's simply not necessarily true. There are people out there who could tell you what the Dutch reformer Macovius taught in the 1630s on the subject of the active imputation of the righteousness of Christ. They could tell you chapter and verse everything that he ever said on the subject, and yet they could not tell you what Paul says about love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you think those kind of people don't exist out there, well, I could give you names. Because there are people out there who know their reformers very well. They know their theologians as well as anybody possibly could. They could talk to you about the ins and outs of all aspects of justification and all aspects of imputation and every other theological issue. And yet they do not have a drop of love in their entire body, nor do they really know what the scriptures say on the subject. They know their theology, and they don't know their Bible. And by the way, that is not difficult to do. The first century Jews would say someone like that is well educated. And Jesus would say that person should focus first and foremost on what God says. In the, in the Reformed world, and I have already alluded to this sort of, but, but I sometimes have noticed this, I will have uh, I will pick up a book on, by a Reformed writer, very eager to learn about the subject, and instead of opening the book and finding the text of Scripture explained for me, you will easily find a book that is filled with ten footnotes per page, with quotations from Reformers and this Puritan and that Puritan, saying what this person and that person said on certain issues. Now, the work of historical theology involves that sort of thing, but I have seen books that seem to be that they were supposed to be teaching us about the contents of the Bible that are written that way as well. Now, that isn't all bad, right? It, it, 
it's important for us not to be innovators. It is important for us as Christians to not be inventing new things. It is, it is important that the pulpits of our land do not exude innovation. We don't want to say new things that no one has ever heard before. The work of the pulpit, the work of the ministry, and I would say even the work of writing books at a popular level for the Christian audience is supposed to be the work of reminding people of what God has already said. We can be too sophisticated for our own good, especially in the Reformed world, especially in the Calvinistic world. But there is this sense in which we don't want to be innovators, and so what happens is, quoting others and gaining their wisdom has an important role to play in that. I, I oftentimes try to include quotations from older writers in my sermons, and part of the reason I want to do that is is A, I want to remind us that church history is important, but I also want to remind you that I, I am hopefully never making up brand new interpretations of Scripture. It's not the role of the pastor. I don't want to invent new things. I want to remind you of the old things. However, doesn't Jesus show us here by example that we are better served by hearing from God directly than constantly hearing quotations about other people's opinion, of other people's opinions, of other people's opinions about God. If you had to pick, it would be far better for you to have memorized and delighted in the book of Romans than to have read and memorized and carefully studied Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. Hands down, there is only one choice. My best friend used to say to me that when we were reading a Christian book together, he would always say this, the most important thing on that page is right before the scripture reference. Whatever the quotation from the Bible is, that's the most important thing on the page. Because everything before it and everything after it is somebody's opinion and somebody's interpretation and hopefully a sound one. But there's nothing more important on this page than the text. And so if the opinion expressed differs from the text of Scripture, you always go with the Scripture. Why is that? Because the Bible is infallible and inerrant. Our words are not. <coughs> the words before and after are helpful. They're good, but they can never match up. To God's word. And there's a lesson in Jesus' conflict here. They think he isn't educated. And they think he isn't educated because he doesn't have other people's teachings memorized. It's a very elitist attitude to have. And Jesus has such a different lesson. He says, pay more attention to the Bible than you do to what other people say about the Bible. That's real learning. How does that apply at this very moment? Here you are, you're hearing from somebody telling you what the Bible says. Is the message here then, disregard Pastor Parker's message? No, the, the answer is not to disregard the message. The answer is, hold it up to the scripture and ask the question, is this what this text is saying? 
Or is he twisting this? Is he, is he changing it? Is he, is he molding it into something else that God would not recognize? That is always our duty as the listener when we are hearing a sermon. We must make sure that what is being said actually comes from the word and is in harmony with the word. If you want to have an ambition, then make it your ambition to know the Bible. And make it your ambition to know it well and to spend time with it and memorize it and labor over it. In other words, follow the example of Jesus. Third, this morning our passage raises the issue of authority. Here, here Jesus is. They've just criticized his lack of education. They say, Jesus never studied. And Jesus responds. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And then Jesus says, the, the real question comes down to this. Whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Is Jesus making this up? Or did he receive this from God? This is the question, isn't it? Who is this God? Where did he get this from? How does he know the things that he's saying? Before he can even know the right answer, they need to self-examine. And so Jesus says in verse 17, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. In, in other words, our ability to rightly weigh these things is not primarily a matter of knowledge. Knowledge is not the problem. Jesus says it's a matter of the will. He says whether it's anyone's will to do God's will. Our ability to weigh these things is not a matter of knowledge. It is a matter of the heart. I have noticed this, that in, in recent years, it seems like unbelievers generally read just enough about Jesus from the internet. I don't think they read it from the Bible. <laughs> they read just enough about Jesus from the internet that they kind of know what he taught. And usually there is a skewed picture of Jesus that gets presented, and it's usually on one or two ends of the spectrum. Very rarely is it in the middle. And the image of Jesus is either on the one hand, he's a card-carrying member of the He-Man woman-hating club, on the one hand, or uh, Jesus is a radical, feminist, anarchist who would have definitely marched on Wall Street, right? And the, the picture we get of Jesus is one or the other. And if you talk to unbelievers, unbelievers will tell Christians, Orthodox Christians, you guys, I don't have to listen to you because everybody knows, knows Jesus was an anarchist, feminist, and all this stuff, and you guys don't honor his teachings. And then on the other hand, you have the people on the far side, or at least who interpret Jesus on the far side, and they say, I don't have to listen to you or Jesus because he was immoral and he taught things that are evil. And you've got these two extreme pictures of Jesus, neither of which is accurate, neither of which is close to what the scripture actually teaches. Here's what I want to say, though. These are not the actions of somebody who wants to genuinely know who Jesus is. These are not the actions of people who want to know Christ. 
it's a moment for us to reflect, you know. When you come to the Bible, do you come to the Bible hoping and expecting for Jesus to, to be a certain way? You have a, you have a pet issue that you care a lot about. You try to read those pet issues into the teachings of Jesus. If you're a Christian for long and you read your Bible, you'll notice that Jesus doesn't play by any of our rules. He doesn't live up to our expectations. You should actually learn to expect Jesus to surprise you when you read about how he lived, when you read about how he spoke. You should expect Jesus to scandalize you. When, when you read the Bible, you should be shocked at times uh, when you see what he's really like and the way he spoke and the things that he thinks. Why is that? It's because Jesus doesn't perform for us. He speaks for God. Jesus also models what a real teacher is like here. This is important for pastors, right? A true pastor of God's people should follow the example of Christ. What does he say? The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. Two things I'd like to say about this. One is this. Preachers need to restrict themselves to the Word of God and make sure they know, don't go beyond the text of Scripture. Uh, pastors, preachers, teachers, we've been given a very solemn task. And the solemn task we've been given is to speak with God's authority and to apply it to the congregation. And the only way we can do that is by making sure that what we say comes from here, from the written word. A friend of mine knew, knew a pastor and a theologian who said, my hope is that when I die, they say of me, he set theology and the Bible, Bible teaching back hundreds of years. And I think what he meant by that was he meant to say, we're not here to say new things. We're here to say forgotten things. We're here to say the things that God's people need to be newly reminded of. We are here to repeat old truths. We're not here to invent new truths. The second thing is this. Teachers are constantly tempted to do what they do in order to get glory for themselves. And in a sense, I have to admit, the last few months now, I think we are here at eight weeks now of me preaching to an empty room and looking at your seats, the seats where the Bradshaws sit, the seats where the Cranes sit, the seats where the Wyndhams sit, the seats where uh, Opie and Gloria sit, the seats where Donald and Glenna sit, those the seats where my family sits. I'm looking at these empty seats as I'm preaching because I know that you will hear this on Sunday. But it is deeply, deeply humbling to preach to an empty room each week. And you don't hear feedback. You don't have hands being shaken at the door where people tell you what they thought of the sermon, where they don't tell you what they gained from it. They don't tell you something they appreciated about it. There's no conversation at the door. When I finish, I simply turn off the camera and I go to upload it to YouTube. It's not very glamorous. And this is what I've been doing for eight weeks now. 
There's no nodding of heads. I don't get to look around and see that that resonated with somebody, that that was something that they needed to see. There are no groans of recognition. There's, there's nothing. And for somebody who may very well have inklings of ambition, God forbid, or need to have his ego stoked, well, that's very humbling, week in and week out, to preach like that. It's very tempting to preach for the words of affirmation you expect from folks on the way out. It, it kind of reminds me of the story of Charles Spurgeon. You know, the way it's told, it's either Charles Spurgeon or Martin Luther. That's why I'm starting to think it never really happened. But the story is told of Charles Spurgeon, how one day after he finished preaching, uh, he preached a particularly stirring message. And Spurgeon was greeted by a woman on the way as, as she was on her way out. And she came up to Spurgeon and she said, I think that was the finest sermon that anybody ever preached. And Spurgeon's response to the woman was, I already knew that, ma'am, because the devil whispered it into my ear as I came down from the pulpit. Jesus says, the temptation is there. The temptation is there. It's, the temptation is real. That temptation to seek our own glory when we preach or when we teach. But Jesus says that temptation isn't an issue for him. It is not an issue for Jesus. But it is a temptation for sinful men and, and even pastors. It's also a temptation, by the way, for all Christians. This isn't just exclusive to those who teach. If we are not humble as Christians, we won't be willing to be taught. If you're not humble, then every sermon you hear, all you will think of is, he should have said that differently. He should have straightened his tie. Uh, he should have, he should have uh, said what Macovius says. i got to keep referring to Macovius. Uh, he, he hasn't thought enough about Davenant, and now Davenant is, deals with this issue. And the criticisms can go on and on and on. How do you listen to sermons? Are you teachable? Do you want to hear God's word taught? Do you want to know the Bible better? What does Jesus say at the end? He says, The Jews are seeking to kill me because they don't love the law of Moses. They love their own glory. And then he says this, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What's Jesus doing here? He's showing us the difference between getting him wrong and getting him right, and that's this. Whose glory do you live for? If, if you trumpet yourself, if you live for your own glory, if you promote yourself, see how far you can get, then you have a, a heart that judges by appearances and that only cares what people think about you. That is a surface-level way to live, says Jesus. Ambition. Loving our own glory. It is it's a sign of trouble. It's a, it's a warning light on the dashboard of our lives. Telling us that something is wrong in our heart. And we need spiritual change, says Jesus. Right? He said it already. Whose will are you living for? This is a heart commitment issue. And there is an answer, and it's given to us by God. And we may think that we have it all spiritually together, but all of us have to admit, we haven't arrived. We haven't arrived. We're not, we are not what we wish we were. 
Even on our best day, we don't really, we don't really live for God's glory. We may to one degree or another, but we always have room to grow. One way or another, we live for ourselves. We disappoint God. And at our core, we are shameless self-promoters who would love to see our faces on billboards, every single one of us. The solution, Jesus says, we serve a Savior who lived for the Father and loved His glory. The answer Jesus presents is not self-improvement for us. The answer he presents is himself, because he's the one who perfectly glorified the Father and loved him the way we're commanded to and always fail to. See, Jesus today looks at each of us and he tells us, come to me. I'm the humble one. I'm the one who did what you have never perfectly done. I live for God's glory. I love the Father. When you didn't love the Father and you couldn't love the Father, I accomplished what you never would and you never could. Jesus says, I judge rightly because I knew you wouldn't. And if you give me your ambition, Jesus says, if you give me your ambition, I will give you my obedience. And then you will know true peace with God. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we need the perfect work of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life that we do not and cannot live on our own. Give us the desire and the will to trust in Christ alone and in his perfect work so that the Father looks at us and sees only the faithful obedience of the Son. We ask you to do this for us. In Jesus' name.